We'd like to welcome you to our current event and weekly Bible study for July 25th, 2010. And today we'll be covering a number of topics, kind of more golf updates, more end-time current events, uh, do a few things on the golf to update you on that particular thing. And then we're going to get into some things regarding Obama and the Internet, um, history of gun control, uh, looking forward here, how he's Obama has disregarded his oath of office. Uh, we're going to be looking also at Walmart beginning to tag their clothing with RFID uh, chips and what you can do about it. Then we're going to be looking at an expose on the Mormon church and their recently passed away President Hinckley and Glenn Beck's take on the whole thing. And that is pretty amazing stuff there on the Mormon church. We're also going to be looking at how Twilight actually, the lady that writes Twilight is actually a Mormon and how she incorporates that into her stories with the vampires and the werewolves. It's really a compatible thing evidently. And then we're going to be looking at the uh, 1 million vaccine doses sent to strategic national stockpile for smallpox bioterrorattack. We're going to be looking at some more things on that, and then Project BioShield, and how HIV vaccines can actually cause 50% false positive rates in HIV tests. Then we're going to be looking at the animal-human hybrids uh, angle with transhumanism, that movie Splice, uh, and more on transhumanism after that, and then we'll be looking at also the alien um, little study on the aliens as well. Also, that hip-hop is now an official religion. And the epidemic of uh, sex trade in the uh, America's heartland, how uh, children are being abducted and sold into sex trafficking, even in America. We'll be looking at the G8 World Religious Summit, uniting all the world religions. And then the quantum spirituality that has entered the church through Christian leaders. Uh, looking at more of the heresy of the shack, the book. I don't mean Shaquille O'Neal, I mean the book, the shack, sorry. Anyway, and then um, Home Depot, how they're just totally uh, on the gay bandwagon, essentially. And also we'll be looking briefly at a uh, teaching that Phil Stringer did recently on the messianic claims of Gail Ripplinger. First story we're going to be looking at today, and what I'm doing with today's study is I'm incorporating uh, most of the Bible study that we're going to do within the uh, given stories that we're going to be looking at. So you're going to get a lot of Bible, but it's going to be kind of within the actual study itself, which we try to do that anyway, but I cannot remember the last time I worked as hard on getting a study together as this one. It's been like almost three days straight of me trying to get this thing together. The Holy Spirit just kept convicting me of more and more verses that needed to be go over and more and more confirming things that I've covered in the past that would actually bolster this study. So, um, first story is censored news. People bleeding internally, millions, millions poisoned, said EPA whistleblower. This is uh, last name Kaufman. EPA whistleblower of Democracy Now! Oh, Mark Kaufman. He says, We have dolphins that are hemorrhaging. People who work near it are hemorrhaging internally. This is the oil spill. And that's what the dispersants are supposed to do. In its report, EPA whistleblower accuses agency of covering up effects of dispersant and BP oil spill cleanup. Democracy Now! states that, quote, many lawmakers and advocacy groups say the Obama administration is not being candid about the lethal effects of the dispersants. So Amy Goodman interviewed Hugh Kaufman, a senior policy analyst at the EPA's Office of Solid Waste and Emergency Response, a leading critic of the decision to use Corexit, 9,500, this is, the, this is the main dispersant they're using, who disclosed how the officials are lying about many things related to the catastrophe, poisoning millions of people. Now this is, I mean, I'm, I'm picking these stories on purpose, where we've got senior policy analysts at EPA, we've got people that have a lot of credentials are coming forward saying this, it's not just some one person putting up a story uh, regarding the Gulf. These are, these are actually people that have a lot more experience with this than I do. 
And there's a real audio link I give you here where you can click and listen to this uh, interview with this EPA whistleblower. The transcript includes Kaufman saying, quote, and I think the media now has to follow the money, just as they did in Watergate, and tell the American people who's getting money for poisoning the millions of people in the Gulf. While concerns over the impact of chemical dispersants continue to grow, Gulf residents are outraged by a recent announcement that the $20 billion government-administrated claim fund will subtract money the cleanup workers earn by working for the cleanup effort from any future claims. So if they're working for the BP cleanup now, they're working, let's say, a 9-to-5 job, any amount of money that they get paid is going to be subtracted from any future claims. That, that, is, that is just insanity. But this is what's happening. BP is trying to weasel out of any possible way they can pay for anything, is what it boils down to. Because they're evil. Uh, going further, it says the Vessels of Opportunity program has employed hundreds of Gulf Coast um, out-of-work people because of the spill, which Kaufman says is viewed as just another way to limit the number of lawsuits against BP. Well, why would she say that? Well, because if you're working for them, you're going to have a lot less likelihood of wanting to sue your boss if, you're, if he's the one paying the paychecks. That's why she said that. And the government, both the EPA and NOAA, etc., have been sock puppets. I love that phrase, sock puppets. Anyway, have been sock puppets for BP in the cover-up. Kaufman concurs with an MSNBC report last week that, quote, the sole purpose of the Gulf, in the Gulf for the dispersants. Now, this is what this EPA insider says. The sole purpose in the Gulf for the dispersants is to keep a cover-up going for BP to try to hide the volume of oil that has been released and save them hundreds of millions, if not billions, of dollars in fines. Not to protect the public health or environment. It's quite the opposite. Well, why would she say that? Because if you are dispersing the dispersants at the, let's say, wherever it's leaking, or spraying it over the ocean, what are the dispersants doing? They're breaking up the oil into microfine particles, and they're sinking the oil. Oil will normally float to the top. Okay, Like they say, oil and water don't mix. Well, if you put oil in water, it generally floats to the top. Well, we're not seeing that because they're spraying these millions of gallons of this, this toxic dispersant on the oil. It's breaking it up, and it's sinking the oil. And so what's happening is kind of like out of sight, out of mind. You're not seeing near as much of what we're actually, what's actually in the water. There's literal plumes down there that are miles and miles and miles long. They could be 3,000 feet down. You don't even know they exist. But they're creating gigantic dead zones in the ocean. Um, so this is exactly why, one of the reasons why they're using the dispersants. It's also to kill us, as we're going to see, because, you know, they got to, they got to, they got to uh, fulfill that, the first commandment of the New World Order, the Georgia Guidestone, some way to reduce world population to 500 million. They got to do it some way, right? You know, so that's another thing they're doing. He says um, to follow the money. That leads to individuals in the Obama administration naming Mr. Geither, Mr. Summers, with close ties to Larry Fink, who owns BlackRock, that owns most of the BP shares. He commented that children are being poisoned. He said, quote, you know, when you're on the sand with your children and they dig down and there's a little bit of water, well, now they've documented there was over 200 parts per million of oil waste in the water. But it's not noticeable to the human eye. Well, how could that be? Because they're using so much dispersants, it's breaking it up into such microfine particles, you don't even know it's in there. You can look at it and you can't even tell. It's subtle. It's just like Satan. He's the most subtle beast of the field. On top of that, the contamination in just one of the samples was so high... Now, I read this the other night, and I didn't report on it right away because I wasn't 100% sure, but now I'm getting a lot of confirmation. The contamination in one of those samples was so high that when they put solvent in it, as a first step in identifying how much oil is in the water, the thing blew up. The actual sample blew up when they put the solvent in it. The water's that toxic in some of these places in the Gulf right now. It's got that much oil in it. Uh, and I give you a link to that story where this scientist did the study and the actual sample blew up. Okay, so, and then he says, just as he said, probably because there was too much corexit in that particular sample. When Goodman asked Kaufman to comment on the similarities between Ground Zero and the Gulf catastrophe and what happened at Ground Zero at 9-11, he explained that he did, 
He did the Ombudsman investigation on Ground Zero, where the EPA made false statements about the safety of the air, which has since proven to be totally false. So they're just, you know, they're totally in league with the government. You know, they are the government, and they're just working hand-in-hand in in this gigantic cover-up. Here's another story. Marine toxicologist Ricky Ott says, quote, we need to start talking about who's going to pay for the evacuation. When now, a lot of people are under the impression now, oh, they got the, they got the well capped, everything's good. Uh, no, sorry. They, it doesn't matter if they even cap that well anymore. There's other fishers that um, are in the area and then also are miles away that are also spewing out oil. And in fact, the, the one fisher that they keep making reference to is putting out 120,000 barrels a day into the ocean. So, you know... Please do not buy what CNN or or the standard news programs are telling you at this point. Because even if they cap that thing, they're not dealing with all the other seabed fishers. They're ignoring that problem totally. They're not even talking about it anymore. Even though we documented in last week's study, uh, high-level person after high-level person after high-level person confirming that these seabed fishers exist. Uh, Let's see. When Louisiana residents asked marine toxicologist and community activist Ricky Ott what she would do if she lived in the Gulf with children, she tells them she would leave immediately. It's that bad. We need to start talking about who is going to pay for the evacuations. End of quote. In 1989, Ott, who lives in Cordova, Alaska, experienced firsthand the devastating effects of the Exxon Valdez disaster. For the past two months, she's been traveling back and forth between Louisiana and Florida, to gather information about what's really happening and share the lessons she's learned about long-term illnesses and deaths of cleanup workers and residents. In late May, she began meeting people in the Gulf with symptoms like headaches, dizziness, sore throats, burning eyes, rashes, blisters uh, that are so deep they're leaving scars. People are asking, what's happening to me? Now, remember, we reported, I believe it was last week, that all, virtually all the workers that worked on Exxon Valdez oil spill are all dead. Okay, And, and again, this oil spill really in proportion is going to be a lot worse. I believe they used a lot worse chemicals with this, with their dispersants. And you're going to have a lot more deaths and you're going to have a lot, you're going to have deaths occurring a lot sooner as well. They're not going to take years most likely to happen. She goes on to say the culprit is the almost 2 million gallons of Corexit the dispersant BP is using to break up and hide the oil below the ocean surface. Again, she's even saying they're using it to break up and hide the oil. She says, quote, it's an industrial solvent. It's a degreaser. It's chewing up boat engines offshore. It's chewing up drive gears onshore. Of course it's chewing up people's skin. The doctors are saying the solvents are making the oil even worse. Uh, now we're going to watch this video. This is a widely watched YouTube video where Chris Pinchenti, a marine biologist and campaigner for the Sea Turtle Restoration Project, said Coast Guard planes are flying overhead at night, spraying Corexit on the water and on land. On land. Why would they spray dispersant on land if they weren't trying to kill people? It doesn't make any sense to me. People need to realize that their water, their air, the sand they're walking on, the things they're touching when they wake up in the morning are coated with this stuff, he said. We are producing an experiment in the Gulf, the likes that no one has ever seen, and top scientists admit that. So we're all part of the experiment. Okay, so this is entitled from the YouTube video, Gulf Oil Spill Science Experiment, uh, says biologist. So I'll go ahead and start this. Coast Guard planes are flying overhead at night, spraying Corexit. You know, you're asking me, do you think it's getting on land? I'm telling you, it's getting sprayed on land. You know, and I know from my work with pesticide applications that even if you have a very good pilot, the drift can be of concern, but the secondary effects are the kind of volatilization, evaporation, and then movement. So it's applied, it sits on the surface, it comes on up a little bit, and then it moves around. And you know wave action, you know a bird landing there and then swim coming over here and landing there is going to be another mechanism to transport it. So do I think that there's dispersants mixing with our everyday lives? Absolutely. The Corexit dispersant issue is a complex and scary one. 
It's scary from the point of a toxicologist. It's complex from the point of the resource manager. My doctoral advisor, Dr. Ron Chirima at UC Davis, was actually on the panel that they had used to advise for the dispersant use. They use a cost-benefit analysis. The costs of cleaning up the shore outweigh the costs of applying dispersants at the sea. Therefore, they perceive the benefit of dispersants outweigh their negative effects. Okay, what value can you really put on the entire ecosystem of the Gulf that is threatened? They've turned a two-dimensional problem of oil floating on the surface into a three-dimensional problem of oil bound with corexit, creating substances we know very little about, you know, transforming in the environment through bacteria process into other chemicals that we know absolutely nothing about, that is going to be impacting just about every single marine organism, including ourselves, okay? People need to realize that their water, their air, the sand they're walking on, the things they're touching when they wake up in the morning are coated with this stuff. And if you see it in a high concentration, it looks like radiator fluid. It is not a pretty sight. And the stuff is toxic. You know, the tests say no effect. I can tell you from managing those tests as a professional that you need to know exactly what test gave you what effect you tested. So if it was no effect on the survival of seven days of the fish, what happened to that fish at ten days? Okay, that was my doctoral thesis. The pesticides that killed no fish at 96 hours, which is the EPA deadline, 90% of them died two weeks later. These were embryonic salmon. There are a lot of chemical effects that are not being measured by the standard EPA tests. The dispersant takes the oil, breaks it up, makes it soluble with water, right? Oil by itself won't mix with water. You put the dispersant in, it mixes with the water. So no longer are you looking at a case with oil here, water there. You're looking at a case where now we don't have so much of an oil slick. It's gone while it's in the water column, so it's affecting more life. Now, how does it do that? It basically disrupts the natural ability of oil to bond with itself. Oil bilipid layers next to each other are the very basis of life. Each of us is made out of cells. Those cells are nothing more than an oil layer surrounding our DNA, surrounding our proteins and our RNA and all the other molecules talking to each other. You put in a chemical that directly disrupts that basic biological structure and you are putting yourself at risk from umpteen effects. This is a single cell trying to reproduce in the ocean and it is destroyed. I can tell you from personal experience, if that organism in that test beaker is paralyzed and incapacitated and its heart rate is half of normal, it is counted as alive. If that heart beats once in a minute, it's alive. And you will see a score of no effect if that's a mortality endpoint test. That is going to kill all of these larval organisms. Okay, And it's not just sea turtles that are reproducing right now. It's the birds and it's everything. So this spill came at a really bad time. Understanding what's behind these tests is part of understanding how toxic these chemicals are. And it's a big question mark right now. We are producing an experiment in the Gulf the likes that no one has ever seen. And the top scientists admit that. So we're all part of the experiment. How do you feel? Okay, now we're going to hear another video clip that gets into entitled BP Spraying Poisonous Gas on People in the Gulf. This is like a little roundtable discussion. We're going to be like listening in to about a minute and a half of it. And Corexit has a sweet, fruity odor. I mean, I learned that yeah, in my hazmat training in it. Yeah, it's, it's got a fruity odor. And, um, but y'all know it has antifreeze in it? And, and naphtha, which is paint thinner, and kerosene. Um, my experience with Corexit was I went out, uh, we chartered the boat to try to go and find some oil to test the hair boom in open water off of Gulf Port. This was the day that Haley Barber uh, got on national TV and said, there is no oil in Mississippi. Come gamble at our casino and come over here. There's oil in Louisiana and there's oil in Alabama. There's oil over in Florida. And Mississippi is clean. I mean, he didn't say it like that. <laughs> and so we went out into the water and then, uh, you know, noticed kind of a yellow haze over the water. And then all of a sudden... There it was. We just, I mean, all of us were like scrambling. We're in six-foot rollers. We're trying to scramble to the front of the boat and get out the mask because we were all like... (laughs) 
And then three or four miles after that, after we went through the cloud, there was no oil in Mississippi because it was this far underneath the water with a ton of little tiny droplets left on top. Everything underneath it was black. So you actually got sprayed. You yourself were physically. We went into the cloud and through it and saw underneath, like afterwards, all the oil just sunk right off the shore. But the corrected cloud continued on to little Jimmy playing in the surf, you know what I mean, and everybody else on shore. So they're talking. She's talking about the Corexit cloud that they went through in the Gulf that day, and how it just drifted onto shore, where children were playing and these types of things, and how this is essentially they're just gassing the population, essentially at this point. And it's a very, very sad thing, but unfortunately, that's what we're dealing with right now. Okay, so then the next story: evidence point to BP oil spill false flag. Um, things that you can look at regarding this particular event with the oil spill. Huge increases in sales of shares and stocks in the days and weeks beforehand by major stockholders of BP. We've covered that in previous studies. The government uses this disaster to also push for a carbon tax, uh, which is another thing that, that you know, you, you create the problem and then you create the solution. And the carbon tax is one of the main things that they've been trying to push. On April 12th, just over one week before Deepland Horizon, Deepwater Horizon Rig exploded, Halliburton, the world's second largest oil field services corporation, this is the one Dick Cheney was CEO of for so many years, surprised some by, Halliburton surprised some by acquiring a company called Boots and Coots. It sounds like a cat food company to me. I don't know. I mean, Boots and Coots. Anyway, a relatively small but vastly experienced oil well control company. The company deals with fires and blowouts on oil rigs and oil wells. Imagine that. Halliburton, world's second largest oil field services corporation, they do this crazy thing. They acquire this company that's vastly experienced in oil well control, and it deals with fires and blowouts on oil rigs and wells. They do. They require this company one week before the Deep Horizon rig blast happened. Isn't that, isn't that a coincidence? Wow. Hmm. It was responsible, this Boots and Coots, cat food, I mean, oil well company, uh, it was responsible for putting out roughly one-third of the more than 700 oil well fires set in Kuwait by retreating Iraqi soldiers during the Gulf War. The deal itself is still under scrutiny with Boots and Coots facing an ongoing investigation into the possible breaches of fiduciary duty and other violations of state law. Where this information gets really interesting is the fact that Halliburton is named in the majority of some two dozen lawsuits filed since the explosion by Gulf Coast people and businesses who claim that the company is to blame for the disaster itself. Halliburton was forced to admit in testimony at a congressional hearing last month that it carried out a cementing operation 20 hours before the Gulf of Mexico oil rig went up in flames. That was in the L.A. Times. I reported on that probably 45 days ago. Another crazy, crazy coincidence with Halliburton. They just happened to cement the actual uh, oil well rig 20 hours before it went up in flames. Yeah, just I'm sure there's nothing to it. The lawsuits claim that four Halliburton wor- workers stationed on the rig improperly capped the well improperly. So, anyway, just that's a little recap of what's going on down there. Let's go to the next part of the study. Uh, This one's entitled, Obama Joins the United Nations Effort to Dictate Acceptable Behavior on the Internet. And I guarantee you, what I'm doing today is not going to be considered acceptable behavior. I'm not behaving as a good Nazi today. Anyway, this goes on to say, the United States, along with the UK, China, and Russia, have agreed to work together under the globalist umbrella of the United Nations to determine norms of accepted behavior in cyberspace. I, I, I mean, that's who I want judging if I have acceptable behavior. The United Nations, I mean, who else would you want to judge you? Now, this is according to Computer Weekly, I guess the magazine. France, Germany, Estonia, Belarus, Brazil, India, Israel, Italy, Qatar, South Korea, and South Africa are also involved in the effort. Robert Kanake a cyber warfare expert with the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, just so you know, Rick Warren's a member of the CFR too, Council on Foreign Relations, 
Anyway, he says, the signed agreement represents a significant change in the U.S. posture. Participation of the U.S. demonstrates the Obama administration's strategy of diplomatic engagement. To achieve the goals, to achieve that goal, the nations will share information about their cybersecurity laws, develop international standards of conduct, and help less developed countries to tighten their cybersecurity. The principles have been finalized for the United Nations, but there's no indication when they'll be reviewed. Even, even Jenny Morovats, a Belarus-born researcher and blogger who writes on the political effects of the Internet, notes that much of the data on the supposed cyber threat are gathered by ultra-secretive government agencies, which need to justify their own existence and cybersecurity companies which derive commercial benefits from popular anxiety. So in other words, these companies make their living by creating anxiety about what's going to happen on the internet, particularly a cyber attack, that type of thing. Our nation will be even more in subjection before a global security bureaucracy that does not answer to our elected representatives, does not respect our national sovereignty and our Constitution and Bill of Rights. And again, these are things we should be you know, praying about. This is why we, we come to you with these things so that you know to pray about them because if you, if you don't know about them, you're not going to pray about it. United Nations Secretary Ban Ki-moon announced in 2009 that the globalist organization has moved to prevent hate speech on the internet. And again, guaranteed what I'm doing right now would be considered hate speech, okay? Because I'm not going along with Big Brother in what they deem as acceptable behavior, this goes on to say, there are those who use information technology to reinforce stereotypes, to spread misinformation, and to propagate hate. Kai Moon said during a speech, a seminar on hate speech, held in June of 2009, he said, quote, Look no further than last week's shocking shooting at the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. For years, the alleged shooter was well known for spewing racist, racist venom through the Internet and elsewhere. The corporate media and liberal bloggers attempted to place blame for the Holocaust Museum shooting on members of the Patriot Movement. James Von Brunn, the accused shooter and avowed white supremacist, was a right-winger, a far-right-winger, said David Niewert. Um, he wrote that in June. More to the point, this is precisely the same belief system that today fuels the cottage in industry in conspiracy theories promulgated by the likes of Ron Paul and Alex Jones. So, in other words, just lump us, lump anyone that would come out with truth, exposing the New World Order, Big Brother, and lump them into the likes of this guy that went into the Holocaust Museum and shot a whole bunch of people. They want It's just like when they say, well, all you Christians are the same. You killed all these people during the Inquisition. And the ironic thing about that is the Catholics did that. They killed millions and millions of people during the Inquisition. And a good uh, many of those millions were true Bible-believing Christians. Yet, the Bible-believing Christians get lumped in with the Catholics. It's total hypocrisy. But the, but the big brother loves to do that to us. And people that are wanting to um, bring liberal agendas, they love to lump people into categories like that. And this is why, you know... It's, you, you have to be educated on these issues in order to fight that, because if you don't know what angle they're coming from, it's, it's a lot harder to fight these types of things. Uh, anyway, he said it's promulgated by the likes of Ron Paul and Alex Jones that the Fed is part of a massive conspiracy of international bankers to enslave Americans and destroy the country. I mean, oh no, there's no truth to any of that. Of course, that's what they're wanting everybody to believe. Following the release of the Department of Homeland Security's report labeled labeling gun owners, returning veterans, and patriot movement activists as the number one threat to national security. The corporate media launched a concerted effort to portray right-wing extremists who defend the Constitution as domestic terrorists. So anybody that owns a gun, a returning veteran, anybody that believes in really free speech, or, or you know, free speech First Amendment, right to bear arms Second Amendment, or, or who would be considered part of the patriot movement, they will be. They are being labeled as right-wing extremists and actually domestic terrorists. Obama partisans, including members of the FCC, 
characterize conservative talk radio as hate speech and demand it be shut down. Now that would be Rush Limbaugh, Glenn Beck, Sean Hannity, any of them. Obama's regulatory czar, and, and again, I would be, you know, I'm not near as big, that's the one thing about me, but um, anybody that's, that's, that's in the conservative vein of talk radio, they're going to target. Obama's regulatory czar, Cass Sunstein, has argued that the government ban conspiracy theorizing and infiltrate extremists who supply conspiracy theories. Infiltrate? The government banned conspiracy theorizing, which would be anyone exposed in the New World Order, and infiltrate extremists who supply conspiracy theories. So just understand, if you have a ministry and you're putting out truth, they're going to try to infiltrate you. It's saying it right here. I mean, they don't care what what, uh, links they go to. And this is to disrupt the efforts of the extremists to propagate their theories over the internet. Now let's just look at the horrific history of gun control in other countries worldwide. The 20th century is riddled with people stripped of their ability to protect themselves through common sense gun control and then murdered by their governments. In 1929, the Soviet Union established gun control. From 1929 to 1953, about 20 million dissidents, unable to defend themselves, were rounded up and exterminated. In 1911, Turkey established gun control. From 1915 to 1917, 1.5 million Armenians, unable to defend themselves, were rounded up and exterminated. Germany established gun control in 1938, under Hitler, and from 1939 to 1945, a total of 13 million Jews and others who were unable to defend themselves were rounded up and exterminated. China established gun control in 1935, and from 1948 to 1952, 20 million political dissidents unable to defend themselves were rounded up and exterminated. Guatemala established gun control in 1964. From 1964 to 1981, 100,000 Mayan Indians unable to defend themselves were rounded up and exterminated. Uganda established gun control in 1970. And from 1971 to 1979, 300,000 Christians unable to defend themselves were rounded up and exterminated. Cambodia established gun control in 1956. And from 1975 to 1977, 1 million educated people unable to defend themselves were rounded up and exterminated. Defenseless people rounded up and exterminated in the 20th century because of gun control. They're saying here 56 million. I think it's far greater than that. But um, that was their the math. I think that was a very conservative estimate there. So again, when you get when you get gun control, it's a matter of time before that happens. Okay, it's it's proven in history is fact. Next story: Obama is to demand 75 percent of your income taxes. If President Obama repeals the Bush tax cuts and imposes a 20% value-added tax, or VAT, on the U.S., Americans may be facing tax rates where more than half of everything earned is confiscated by the federal government in the form of income taxes. Jerome Corsi's Red Alert reports. Add Social Security taxes and the tax burden quickly advances to more than 60%. Adding state, property, and income taxes to the burden, the amount the government constitutes confiscates could be in the 75% range before Americans have a chance to vote Obama out of office in 2012. Corsi wrote, quote, Are Americans willing to be taxed 75% of every dollar earned? In a five-day work week, will Americans be willing to work four days for the government? Corsi asked, he said, As Obama moves the U.S. in the direction of becoming a European-style social welfare state, it is important to consider taxation levels that are already typical in Europe. I mean, they have gigantic taxing levels over in, in certain parts of Europe where they're, they're already doing this. Corsi noted that even high levels of taxation are not sufficient in Europe to prevent debt levels from rising to crisis proportions, as has been seen in Greece and looming on the horizon in Portugal, Spain, and Italy. So, again, just more exposing of Obama in his administration. Uh, here's the next congressman. Former congressman and GOP presidential candidate says for current members of the House and Senate to uphold their oath of office, that includes the defense of the United States against enemies foreign and domestic. They need to file impeachment charges against Barack Obama. 
Former U.S. Representative Tom Tancredo of Colorado joined what is becoming a growing surge of those recommending the ultimate solution for a president they believe not only has disagreeable policies, but is participating in actions that damage the nation. Tancredo wrote in an opinion piece in the Washington Times that Mr. Obama's refusal to live up to his oath of office, which includes the duty to defend the United States against foreign invasion, requires senators and representatives to live up to their oaths. Members of Congress must defend our nation against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Today, that means bringing impeachment charges against Mr. Obama. Yeah, amen. I would love to see it. And there's a link here. And again, I'm going to have all this in PDF format that will be connected to the teaching up on contendingfortruth.com. You can click on any of these links and explore any of I'm not telling you to believe a word I'm saying. Click on it. People a lot smarter than me wrote these articles. I'm here to glean and to hopefully help make more biblical sense of what is going on. Um, we're going to be getting a, in a lot more Bible verses a little bit later regarding some of these issues. Uh, but you, you can, uh, I, I try to every week post a PDF where you can verify every single thing that I'm saying here. Next article. Uh, urgent alert. Walmart is to begin item level tagging clothing with RFID. Uh, your help is needed. Today, the Wall Street Journal broke an enormous story. Walmart, the nation's largest retailer, has declared war on our privacy. <laughs> As though they didn't already, but the giant retailer has announced it will begin placing item-level RFID, or radio frequency identification tracking tabs, on clothing sold in its stores. While the tags can be removed from clothing and packages, they can't be turned off, and they are trackable. This is huge news. It is the first step to the plan rollout where global corporations like IBM, Procter & Gamble, and Walmart's technology partner, NCR, plan to equip every product with a tracking device and use a network of RFID readers to monitor and observe you everywhere you go. It is, this, it is in this frightening world detailed in the book Spy Chips uh, by Catherine Albrecht, and it is finally coming to pass. Unless we stop it, Walmart's rollout is scheduled to begin next month. Here's a link. There's a link I provide here to the Wall Street Journal story about this. Uh, and Catherine Albrecht is writing this, and she says, As you know, RFID is a powerful tracking technology that raises unprecedented privacy concerns. Walmart's plan does more than just threaten our privacy. It is poised to become a direct threat to our freedom and civil liberties, as I will describe in future emails. It is imperative that we immediately act to oppose Walmart's RFID rollout. I have placed calls and given Walmart an opportunity to respond, but as of this afternoon, Walmart corporate executives and media representatives have not returned our calls. Yeah, I hope she doesn't lose any sleep on that, because most likely it's not going to happen. In the meantime, we are formulating a response to Walmart's plans that will protect consumers. I will keep you posted on this breaking story. Uh, her website is probably the easiest one for you to go to, and the links are all here. Uh, www.spychips.com or www.antichips.com. See, this is all getting us conditioned for the mark of the beast, essentially, is what we're dealing with here. And uh, let's go ahead and we're going to watch a, we're going to listen to a YouTube video of Glenn Beck on the Mormon LDS Church President Hinckley. We're going we're gonna to get his take on that, so stay tuned. show my emotion in this next few minutes. Once in a while, there, there's a person that comes along in your life that changes it, and they change it because they stand for something. They don't compromise. They believe in something better, and you see it. They are, in effect, your personal shining city on the hill. If you know anything about me or my history, you know that I spent a lot of my life as, as a miserable and callous guy. I know, you're stunned. But longtime listeners of my show, if they're being honest, will tell you that they've seen a great change come over me uh, over the years. Some of them don't like it because they don't call people fatheads as much as I used to. Believe me, this is a calm version of Glenn Beck. I certainly have my moments where the old me shows up, but on balance, I'm a cuddly kitten in comparison to the old me. That is, in large part, due to one guy. When I want to call somebody a pinhead or a fathead, I uh, think of him and how he would handle the situation. Because I wanted to be more like him. 
He stood for something elevated, something transcendent. And you could just simplify what he believed in just by saying he believed in be kind to others, be a better person. I realize that I'm a long way away from that. I think almost everybody is. Last night, this gentleman, Gordon B. Hinckley, passed away. He was 97 years old. You probably don't even know who he is unless you share my faith. He was the head of my church. Obviously, he was an old man, 97. He lived a great life, most of which was just spent inspiring people to be better in a quiet way. As he grew older and he became sick, I knew that last night would eventually come. I wondered how I would react. Last night, when I heard a soft knock on my bedroom door, it was my daughter, Mary. She told me the news that Gordon B. Hinckley had passed away. I surprised myself. I wasn't sad. It was a warm feeling. I just thought of a great man finally being reunited with his sweet, sweet wife. One day, when I, it was actually the first time I met Larry King, he asked me, he said, Gordon B. Hinckley, one of the nicest men I've ever met. Amazing guy. Have you ever met him, Glenn? I told him no. He very nicely offered to introduce me to him, and I declined. I didn't want to feel like I was a fan going to meet a celebrity. But now I wish I would have taken, up, taken him up on that offer. Just so I could have shaken his hand and said, thank you. I didn't know the man, but I watched his example. Whether you're in my faith or another faith or no faith at all, we could learn a lot just by watching good examples from time to time. From New York, good night. Okay, so we'll see. Glenn Beck's very, very sincere. But is sincerity the mark of a Christian? I mean, a true Christian. Is that the only thing that matters? The Bible says there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. This Gordon Hinckley, we're going to look at a quote from him. He's, he was the head of the Mormon church, just so you know. Glenn Beck just called him his personal shining city on a hill, something to that effect, and that he just lived his life just wanting to be like him. The Bible says, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man and that maketh flesh his arm and whose heart departeth from the Lord. Jeremiah 17.5 The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And to say that now he's united with his wife, well, the only truth in that statement would be they're united in hell. I'm sure they're not with each other. But they're in hell. Why? Well, because they believed a false gospel. They believed another gospel. They believe a, go a gospel of works through the Mormon church in order to earn and garner your way into heaven. This President Hinckley is going to be responsible for most likely, in some way, shape, or form, for millions of people going to hell. That's the bottom line that we're talking about here. I mean, let's look at this closer. LDS Mormon prophet Gordon B. Hinckley, he worships a, a different Jesus Christ, and he openly admits it. It's not the God of the Bible. It's not the Jesus Christ of the Bible. And here, I'm going I'm to give you a quote from him. This is from Gordon B. Hinckley, his own writings, Disret News, Church News Section, Salt Lake City, Utah, week ending June 20th, 1998, page 7. He says, quote, No, I don't believe in the traditional Christ. The traditional Christ of whom they speak is not the Christ of whom I speak. For the Christ of whom I speak has been revealed in this, the dispensation of the fullness of times, meaning in his Mormon church. Now again, I'm going to give you this quote. You can, you, can, uh, you can go through these. All these quotes that we'll be reading. Uh, let's go ahead and watch the next video, and then I'll go over some of the quotes they didn't cover in this particular video. Okay, so now we're going to be looking, we're going to be listening to an audio clip entitled Christians Expose the Mormon Religion. It's only about five and a half minutes long, and we're going to be looking at some of the, the quotes from some of the most famous people in the Mormon religion, including the founder of the Mormon religion, Joseph Smith. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. This and many other passages directly conflict with Joseph's teachings that there are many gods, 
and that men can become gods. The Bible says, Before me there were no gods formed, Isaiah 43.10. Neither shall there be after me. That means all the Mormon teaching about many gods is false. It means there was never a god before this god. It also means that Mormon men will never become gods. In bearing testimony of Jesus Christ, President Gordon B. Hinckley spoke of those outside the church who say Latter-day Saints do not believe in the traditional Christ. Hinckley responded, No, I don't believe in the traditional Christ. The traditional Christ of whom they speak is not the Christ of whom I speak. For the Christ of whom I speak has been revealed in this, the dispensation of the fullness of times. Now, remember, that's the exact man that Glenn Beck was just getting all teary-eyed about. Amazingly, in the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, page 345, we are told, I am going to tell you how God came to be God. We have imagined and supposed that God was God from all eternity. I will refute that idea and take away the veil so you may see. He was once a man like us, yea, that God himself, the father of us all, dwelt on an earth. The same as Jesus Christ said, I have more to boast of than ever any man had. I am the only man. Now, this is a quote from Joseph Smith himself. You talk about pride, arrogance, delusion. I'll let him continue the quote. And that has ever been able to keep a whole church together since the days of Adam. Neither Paul, John, Peter, nor Jesus ever did it. I boast that no man ever did such work as I. The followers of Jesus ran away from him, but the Latter-day Saints never ran away from me yet. Uh, I tell you what, if, if that don't get you fired up, your wood's wet. I, I mean, I, <laughs> uh, where do you begin with this blasphemy that we're hearing here? Now, again, this is... This is teaching. Let me just read you that quote again, and, and let me tell you where it came from. This is the LDS, Latter-day Saint History of the Church, Volume 6, page 408 and 409. Joseph Smith says he has done more than Jesus Christ. I have more to boast of than any man ever had. I am the only man that has ever been able to keep a whole church together since the days of Adam. Neither Paul, John, Peter, nor Jesus Christ ever did it. I boast that no man ever did such a work as I. The followers of Jesus Christ ran away from him, but the Latter-day Saints never ran away from me yet. You notice the theme in that quote, a lot of eyes, me, me, me. Where else do we hear that in the Bible? Well, the, first, the, the verse that instantly came to mind that the Holy Spirit convicted me of is Isaiah 14, 12 through 15 that says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shall be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. And that's exactly where Joseph Smith is now. I mean, unless he repented on his deathbed, which is highly unlikely regarding the quotes. I think he was pretty far gone uh, regarding the quotes that we're reading here. So let's go ahead and, and hear some more from Joseph Smith and from Brigham Young, the two main uh, initial prophets of the uh, Mormons. In stark contrast, Brigham Young stated, No man or woman in this dispensation will ever enter the celestial kingdom of God without the consent of Joseph Smith. Did you hear that one? Let me say that one again. Again, that is in the Journal of Discourses by Brigham Young, Volume 7, page 289 that no man or woman in this dispensation will ever enter into the celestial kingdom of God without the consent of Joseph Smith. That's the Mormon religion. If you're a Mormon, that's what you, you believe in, whether you've ever heard it or not. What rank blasphemy 
This is nothing more than a cult that is designed to take as many people to hell as possible with this Christian-like veneer that they put on where they have they send out their teenage boys with their white shirts and their little helmets on in pairs of two in order to go out and evangelize the Mormon gospel. They're, they're, they're nothing more than agents of Satan. I mean, I pray to God their souls be saved. I'm not, I don't, it's not like I want anybody to go to hell. But the reality is, is they're out there commissioned literally by Satan in order to propagate this false doctrine. They're not aware of it. Well, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Let's go further. Let's hear some more of these teachings. Joseph Smith told of the inhabitants of the moon as being about six foot tall, dressed like Quakers, and living to be about a thousand years old. Since Neil Armstrong's walk on the moon in 1969, we now know there are no Quaker-looking people on the moon. Later, Brigham Young further expanded on Joseph Smith's idea by stating the sun was inhabited. The requirement for God's prophets is 100% accuracy. Deuteronomy 18, 21 through 22 states, You may say in your heart, How will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, That is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. Here, God tells his people how to discern deception by someone claiming to be a prophet. If even one prophecy does not come true, he is considered a false prophet. Amazingly, Joseph Smith's successor, Brigham Young, revealed that your godhood rests on the act of polygamy, saying, The only men who become gods, even the sons of God, are those who enter into polygamy. So, in other words, the only way that you can become uh, gods or son of God is to have multiple wives. That's it. That's the only way. That's that's Journal of Discourses by Brigham Young, Volume 2, page 269. If you read section 132 in the Doctrine and Covenants now, uh, it's the only section that teaches... Um, the, the concept of eternal marriage. And uh, it also teaches polygamy in the same section. And that's the reason why you can't really separate polygamy from eternal marriage that Mormons talk a lot about now. It's, it's right in their own scripture. I will now give you a description of the manner in which the Book of Mormon was translated. Joseph would put the seer stone into a hat and put his face in the hat drawing it closely around the face to exclude the light, and in the darkness the spiritual light would shine. A piece of something resembling parchment would appear, and on that appeared the writing. One character at a time would appear, and under it was the interpretation in English. Brother Joseph would read off the English to Oliver Cowdery, who was the principal scribe, and when it was written down and repeated to Brother Joseph to see if it was correct, then it would disappear and another character with the interpretation would appear thus the book of mormon was translated by the gift and power of god and not by any power of man this translation method was affirmed by david whitmer martin harris oliver cowdery and emma smith among others and it is this unbiblical method of translation that Joseph Smith boasted the bold claim that the Book of Mormon was the most accurate book in existence. If this book was translated by the gift and power of God, we must ask the question, why have there been thousands of corrections to the Book of Mormon, many of which relate to doctrinal and historical issues? Okay, so that's the end of that particular video. Also, why would the Book of Mormon contradict the Bible? In so many places, God is not the author of confusion. Why would? How can you have like the Pearl of Great Price, the Book of Mormon, and the King James Bible, which the Mormons will use? You've got them contradicting in all these particular places. Well, what's the truth? Well, the Bible says, "Thy word is truth." Okay. The Bible says, "If you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, 
and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Okay, so it's predicated on continuing in his word. It doesn't say continuing in the Book of Mormon or continuing in the Pearl of Great Price that contradict the word of God, as God is not the author of confusion. God is not double-minded. The Bible says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Well, again, we've, we've got proof that this is a very double-minded religion. Uh, let's look at some other quotes here uh, coming from the Mormon church. Let, let, let's, let's go over this one again. This is from Brigham Young, LDS Prophet, uh, General Disclosure, Volume 7, page 289. No man or woman in this dispensation will ever enter into the celestial kingdom of God without the consent of Joseph Smith. Every man and woman must have the certificate of Joseph Smith Jr. as a passport into their entrance into the mansion where God and Christ are. I mean, this is, this is just almost clear laughable. But this is what the Mormons believe, and this is what they're taught, and this is what they follow. This insane blasphemy. Then he goes on to say in the same quote, Joseph Smith reigns there, meaning heaven, as a supreme a being in his sphere, capacity, and calling as God does in heaven. Can you get much more blasphemous than this? Now, here's another uh, uh, interesting point Mike just brought up, is that if you believe in the Mormon religion, and that it's the only truth and the only way and the only to heaven, well then you would also have to believe that prior to the Mormon religion starting, that every other person that ever existed all went to hell. Which is really the same for almost any cult that gets started, that believes that their way is the only way. I mean, hey, he's got his own little flavor and take on this, and obviously it's totally different than anything we've ever seen. So it's just, it, the arrogance and the pride is just amazing. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Brigham Young said, in Journal of Discourses, Volume 13, page 217. Uh, so he says, so in regard, well, he says, who can tell us the inhabitants of this little planet that shines in the evening called the moon? When you inquire about the inhabitants of that sphere, you will find that the most learned are ignorant as to regard to them as the ignorant of their fellows. So it is in regard to the inhabitants of the sun. Do you think it is inhabited? I rather think it is. Do you think there is any life there? He says, no question of it. It was not made in vain. Well, you know what? The sun provides our heat. It's what enables, you know, the, the tilting of the planet and how that we have an elliptical orbit around the sun. It enables us to, you know, obviously have... Um, Plants to grow, for the four seasons to occur, all these things. It's not like it's made in vain. It doesn't have to have inhabitants. Who could actually live on or in the sun, other than maybe God himself? You know. But this is, this is the delusion that overtakes these people. Uh, let's go further. And again, this is that one. Uh, Joseph Smith taught the inhabitants of the moon are more of a uniform size than the inhabitants of the earth. Being about six feet in height, they dress much like Quakers and are quite general in style of fashion and dress. They live to be very old, generally coming to be about a thousand years. Whereas that said, the Journal of Oliver B. Huntington, volume 3, page 66, as recorded at Utah State Historical Society. I mean, this guy's beyond delusional. And then the manner of translation, where the, Joseph Smith actually put his head into a hat with what they call a seer stone, which would be like, literally like a crystal ball in witchcraft. And he drew it closely around his face to exclude the light. In the darkness, a spiritual light would shine, a piece of something resembling parchment would appear, and then that appeared writing. One character at a time, and then its interpretation in English, thus the Book of Mormon was translated. In that incredibly unbiblical, extra-biblical method, it's no difference than Alice Bailey getting... Uh, all of her books that she wrote that Maitreya and, and Benjamin Krem and many in the New Age say are must-reading from the different ascended masters. I believe Dijual Cool being the main one. And she wrote volumes and volumes and volumes of books 
in a very similar manner. Of course, she didn't use a cedar stone, but literally there's different ways that these things come to people. Sometimes it's through automatic writing, where they're sitting at a, at a table and a spirit literally takes over their arm and their fingers and they just start writing. That's one of the ways they do it. Um, they can have it trans-channel mediumed through them, where it's literally coming out through them. They're acting as a medium or a trans-channeler for the spirit in order to write this stuff down. Here's another way that we're looking at. So, again, it's just one more satanic way that you can start a cult. Now, also, did you know that Mormons believe that Satan is the brother of Jesus? Did you know that? Yeah. In the Discourses of Brigham Young on page 53 and 54, he says, quote, Who will redeem the earth? Who will go forth and make the sacrifice for the earth and all things it contains? The eldest son said, Here I am. And then he added, send me. The eldest son being Jesus Christ, just so you know. But the second one, the second son of God, which was Lucifer, the son of the morning, I'm quoting here, said, Lord, here am I, send me. I will redeem every son and daughter of Adam and Eve that lives on the earth. Or that ever goes on the earth. So, literally... In the discourses of Brigham Young, the literally the one that took over the church after Joseph Smith passed away and went to hell, he said, literally, that Lucifer said, I will redeem every son and daughter of Adam and Eve that lives on earth. Well, isn't that the exclusive territory of Jesus Christ? Didn't his death, burial, and resurrection, his finished work on the cross, his shed blood on the cross, isn't that what redeems us? But he's saying, Lucifer did that. Wow, I mean, I can't imagine how much more blasphemous you can get. Spencer W. Kimball, in his conference report on April of 1964, page 95, says, quote, There is another power in this world, forceful and vicious. In the wilderness of Judea, on the temple's pinnacles, and on the high mountain, a momentous contest took place between two brothers, Jehovah, meaning Jesus Christ, and Lucifer, the sons of Elohim. Uh, He goes on to say, uh, in another book he wrote, On page 87, similarly, Satan had contended for the subservience of Moses. Satan, also a son of God, had rebelled and been cast out of heaven and not permitted an earthly body, as had his brother Jehovah, or Jesus Christ. So that's what the Mormons teach, that Jesus Christ and Satan are brothers. The teachings of Spencer W. Kimball, page 33, says, quote, The principal personalities in this great drama were the father Elohim, perfect in wisdom, judgment, and in person, and his two sons, Lucifer and Jehovah. He said that on 12-19-1959. Yeah, Mike just brought up a good verse, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So he is the only begotten son of the Father. And we're going to talk a little bit about that more when we get into some of the other studies as well. But again, it's another gospel, uh, literally another Jesus that they teach. And this cult is going to be responsible for taking millions to hell. And we're called in the Bible to reprove the unfruitful works of darkness and have no fellowship with them. We're also told to make them manifest, to shed light on them. And, again, this is what we're doing here today with this cult. So let's go further, and and then we'll end this part, and we'll go to part two. And this is in the Twilight. Uh, Twilight author Stephanie Meyer, the the vampire, the one that writes about all the vampires. Uh, Twilight author Stephanie Meyer is widely known to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and openly acknowledges that her faith has had an impact on her books. She says, quote, unconsciously, I put a lot of my basic beliefs into the story, she said. Now, I remember last week I was talking about Twilight. I forgot that she was a member of the Church of Mormon. Well, this is why there's so much Mormonism in the Twilight books. Hey, it's just two different cults woven together as two different cult-like belief systems. Then she goes on to say, to begin with, Stone pointed out of several superficial elements in Twilight that she says clearly correspond with the LDS faith. LDS meaning Latter-day Saints. Uh, Let's see. These include the description of Edward Cullen, which she says matches the mythical description of the church founder, Joseph Smith. 
the, the head vampire looks just like Joseph Smith. And we just had a nice primer on him. Okay? Uh, and it says, she matches, Joseph Smith matches Edward Cullen, the head vampire guy, down to his nose and hair color, as well as the series overarching juxtaposition of a dark race of werewolves called Lamanites in Mormon legend that fight an epic battle with the white race of vampires called the Nephilites. Kind of close to Nephilim. Hmm. Kind of funny. Bella's journey of conversion to vampirism corresponds to the goal of winning eternal life by embracing the Mormon faith and overcoming, in a sense, the natural man that stands in the way of heavenly perfection. I mean, is this mind-blowing information here? I, I just, I couldn't even believe it as I was going over it. How it all ties together, too. In addition, Stone evidently... It's the person that's doing this report. Evidently, in addition, Stone even points to the presence of an authoritarian, hierarchical race of enemy vampires who are based in Italy and enforce the code of conduct that passes for morals in their vampiric world, who are called the Volturi, as closely corresponding to the Mormon attitude toward the Catholics. Because the Volturi are in Rome. (laughs) This, This is just... unbelievable stuff, but thematically, Stone points to the series' emphasis on personal perfection and predestination of couples as having pre-selected each other for a literal eternal bond, like the the, um, that quote we said last week, I'll love you forever, forever, something that the vampires talk about. So evidently they have this eternal bond, these vampires. And they're in search of personal perfection. Evidently, through vampirism, killing humans, sucking their blood, drinking blood, which is forbidden. They're literally like the walking dead. But hey, they're trying to achieve personal perfection and um, this eternal bond with someone else. Uh, These are two themes that directly correlate with Mormon sensibilities. So, again, that's how we have now Stephanie Meyer's Twilight tying in with Mormonism. So let's go ahead and part one there, and we'll go to part two next. God bless you.